made up the world and we're investigating those elements and seeing what we can learn from the natural world to teach us about the spiritual world. Last week, Ken tackled Earth, and this week we get, a, we get to do wind. So what do we know about the wind? If you were in Central Oregon last night, you probably experienced some of the power of the wind. We could talk about wind being defined as air in motion and well, that air being brought into motion by differences in atmospheric pressure. And then we could talk about those differences in atmospheric pressure being due to changes in temperature. And we could go on and on about that kind of stuff. But this isn't a high school physics class. It's a Sunday morning service. And so what do we know about wind? Well, we know that wind, for instance, is powerful. I remember when I was in high school, I attempted to ride 100 miles on my mountain bike. And so I took off the knobby tires that were on my mountain bike, and I threw on some slicks so that I could move with uh, more efficiency across the ground on my mountain bike, and I headed out the, out the Carmel Valley down in the Monterey Peninsula in California, and I got about 50 miles into my ride, and I turned to come back towards the ocean up the Salinas Valley. 50 miles into it, those of you who are laughing already realize what happened to me. I was hit with a wind that on an incline about like that, in my biggest gear, pushing as hard as I could, I was going about 11 miles an hour. And so 55, 60 miles into my ride, I actually had to call my dad and get him to pick me up because it was getting dark and I was, I was fearful that I wasn't going to make it. So I experienced firsthand the power of the wind. Some of you have, in fact, probably all of you have experienced the cool breeze on a summer night, the, uh, the refreshing nature of wind and that element. So wind has both the capacity to be extremely powerful and tear things apart and rip down trees and tear houses and trailer parks apart uh, back in the Midwest with tornadoes. And it also has the power to be very cooling and refreshing. Um, well, what happens when we don't have wind? A stagnancy can come into a room or a car. Um, when we don't have wind, we don't have the cycle of water continued because weather cannot be brought in. So wind is, would plays a very integral role in the systems of nature. Of course, we as human beings have for a long time had the power to harness the wind, to allow us to transport goods over water. The ancients knew this and used that to establish trade routes in the ancient seas, and they would also, of course, discover the new world on which the continent we're standing uh, was discovered through harnessing this power of wind. Well, one thing for sure we know about wind is we know that wind is constant. There is never a time or a place on earth when wind in some way, shape, or form is not present. And so remember our task this morning. Our task is an investigation of the natural world to see what we can learn about the spiritual world. And so wind is a constant. Wind is powerful. Without wind, there really, because of the integral role it plays in the systems of life, without wind, there really is no life. So those of you, most of you are probably a step ahead of me. How does that relate to spiritual principles? Well, I transfer that to God. And I would argue that God is constantly moving. I would argue that God is powerful, that God has refreshing elements to his character. But maybe fundamentally for this morning, one thing I'd like you to remember, a couple weeks from now someone asks you, what did you talk about on that December 2nd Sunday morning? Well, we talked about the fact that God is a constant, and he is constantly moving. We see this, if you turn your Bibles to the first uh, chapter of the book of Genesis, we see this in the first verse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Our Bibles read, uh, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And in Hebrew, that is thought of by most scholars to be the introduction to the book, or the title, rather, to the book of Genesis. And so that would sit above the text in the ancient language. And then below it would come the first actual verse of the Hebrew Bible. And that starts in our English Bibles with verse 2. Verse 2 says, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Hebrew has no distinct word for nature. In fact, everything uh, in the ancient Hebrews concept of the world um, that had to do with movement, that had to do with cycles of life, all came as a direct result from the hand of God. Nature, over here like it is in the modern world, and some form of deity that we respect or worship over here, there's no concept in the ancient world of that. They're both one and the same. The sun rises, the sun sets, it's all done by the direct hand of God, bringing the sun up and bringing it back down. Wind would literally be thought of as something that the gods in the heavens were blowing about, caused by the exchange of air in their lungs. So no difference between God over here and nature over there in the ancient Hebrew mind. Well, what did I say? Wind is constantly moving. There's never a time or place when wind is not a presence. And it's the same thing with God. In the first verse of your Bibles, what do we have God doing? He's moving. God is moving over the face of the waters. And it's a wind of God. And in Hebrew, this word is ruach. And ruach means wind, but it can also mean spirit. So the spirit of God, or the wind of God, the active agent as God is moving over the waters, that is what we see present here. We flip over a couple um, chapters in, further into the book of Genesis, and we get to chapter 8. So God, in that first section of the text there, he is ushering in, he's beginning his creative process through movement through his spirit moving or his wind moving. And we get to chapter 8, and the great flood has come, and the, and the waters have come down, and Noah and his family and many of the animals are safe on the ark. And the text reads in verse 1 of chapter 8, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And here's our key. And God made a wind blow over the earth, ruach, and the waters subsided. God remembers his people and he decides to stop the destructive power of the waters coming down through a wind. God's spirit, God's active agent in the world. It's kind of hard for us to get our minds around because we don't think of wind being an activity of God's direct hand. But remember we talked about the ancient Hebrews and the ancient world saw no distinction between what happens here in nature and what happens over here in the religious world. They are one and the same. And so God remembers his people. He remembers in this passage that he is not going to destroy all of humanity and all of the animals, and he stops the waters from coming down through his wind. That word remembered there is interesting because it's the same word used in Exodus chapter 2 after God has heard the groanings of his people as they're enslaved in Egypt. And after hearing those groanings, it says in chapter 2, verse 24, that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he decided at that point to be an active agent, to begin actively pursuing redemption through his people. And you know the story with Moses and the redemption of his people through God's, through God's movement, through God's motion on the earth. 
It's interesting that wind is used many times in that Exodus story. Wind is used to bring the locusts in from the east as one of the plagues. Wind is used in that most famous story of the Israelites coming to the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army bearing down upon them, ready to slay them. And what happens to the waters when Moses raises his staff? The text says a wind of God, a ruach of God, a spirit of God comes and separates the waters. And the Israelites were allowed to pass through on dry land. And of course, once they get through, the Egyptians march down into the sea and they're destroyed by that because the wind of God no longer was going to hold up the water for them. We also see wind in that Exodus story bringing uh, quail from the east once again to bring meat and sustenance to the Israelites as they survived in the desert. So wind, movement of God, motion of God, acting in a very powerful way as an agent for God's redeeming activity in the world. That's what wind does. That's what the motion of God does in the Bible. Um, God's wind, God's spirit is constantly moving throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, his spirit comes at specific times and rests on specific people. And so you have, for instance, with the book of Judges, that very interesting cycle of Israelite sin, Israelites' rebellion against God, which gets them into situations of trouble, and they cry out to God, and God being gracious and merciful and loving decides he will redeem his people and he sends his powerful spirit to rest upon an individual sometimes most of the time men often at least one time on a woman to deliver those people and, and then the cycle will continue which makes for a very entertaining book of the Israelites once again getting themselves into trouble and crying out to God and God responding to them by using his spirit as an active agent of his redeeming power. David must have had God's spirit because he is the most famous king of Israel, uh, decided um, at one point he was going to blow it big time. And so he enters an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba. He uh, gets her pregnant and then takes uh, measures to have him executed so that he can cover up, um, have her husband executed so that uh, he can cover up his sin. And he cries out in a very famous uh, passage in the book of Psalms, if you're a quick turner, you could go to Psalm 51. And this is a petition of David to, uh, to God in forgiveness, asking for forgiveness for what he's done. David says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And here it is, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That Holy Spirit which indwelt David at times when he needed to uh, slay Goliath, for instance, or lead the Israelites into battle. This spirit that allowed him to make decisions that were wise for the greater good of the kingdom of Israel. So David, knowing he has royally blown it, is saying, God, don't take that presence, that movement, that active agent of your will from me. In the New Testament... Um, the Spirit, the, the movement of God, is a very powerful agent in, in Jesus' ministry right from the begin, uh, right from the get-go. We know that his, um, we know that his, at his um, baptism, he has just been baptized out in the desert by John, and he looks up towards the heavens, and what comes down? The Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove, and that Spirit will indwell Jesus and will allow him to do amazing things. In fact, it's a great uh, example in the book of Mark, if you read that, that story, you'll see that immediately after that spirit comes down upon Jesus, 
he'll go and he'll proclaim very boldly this message of God's redeeming activity in the world and a proper way to read the Bible. And he'll deliver people from infirmities and sicknesses and, and he'll heal many. Uh, he'll end up feeding thousands of people and he'll end up in John, for instance, changing water into wine. So some powerful examples of what it, what it means to be an agent of God as God moves in the world. It's that same spirit that Jesus promises to send his believers uh, at the end of the Gospels and ends up sending them uh, to them in the book of Acts. And uh, in Acts chapter 2, that spirit comes on a, on a day known as Pentecost. And so we have a reference to the Old Testament, Penta being uh, five, and um, in, the, in the Jewish tradition of their history, uh, Pentecost was a day that commemorated 50, an event 50 days after the Exodus in the Old Testament. So the major act of God in the Old Testament, that major redeeming act where he delivered his people, 50 days after that event comes Pentecost, comes the deliverance of God. So God redeems at the Exodus event, and then 50 days over that Passover Exodus event, comes the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And that giving of the law is commemorated, commemorated by the Jewish people in a day known as Pentecost, a giving of a gift to God's people so that they could live in a different way than the rest of the world around them, so that they could live separated and have uh, principles and uh, guidance as they live their lives and, and, and really affect to differentiate themselves from the rest of the world. Well, that's the major redeeming act of the Old Testament, that Exodus event. What is the New Testament Exodus event? Well, it's Jesus. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is the Exodus. That is the big God moment in the, in the New Testament. And so 50 days after that big God moment in the New Testament, what do we have? We have a second Pentecost. The Old Testament had theirs, and now the New Testament will have its. And, and the New Testament's Pentecost, what will God give his people? Well, he gives him that spirit. That spirit that had moved from the beginning of creation, from the first verse of the Bible, all the way through the New Testament, through Christ's ministry, and in the lives of the believers, it would now indwell each and every one of them so that they can continue this movement of God, powerfully acting as God's agent in his redeeming activity in the world. Without God's spirit, without God's wind, without God's movement, just like in the natural world, there is no life. And there's a stagnation, a stuffiness almost, that can come into an environment when you have a lack of wind, and in the same way when you have a lack of the movement of God. Well, um, most of us in here long to experience movement. Um, we long for a sense of drive and inertia and energy. Um, most of us long for refreshment. Uh, I don't think any of us in here would say, I really like stuffy rooms. I really like smelly cars where there's just stagnancy of the air and you can hardly breathe. Most of us like to go outside and just a full fresh breath of air of the just beautiful uh, smells that we get here in Central Oregon and the really the experience you get when air is moving and functioning as it properly should. And so the fact is, though, um, most of us have areas in our lives where we miss sometimes the movement of God. Um, but I want to talk about 
what the movement of God looks like for a, for a moment this morning. What does it look like if God is moving? Now, most of us won't probably stand at the edge of the Red Sea and see our hand go up and seize part to deliver an entire people group. Most of us won't change water into wine or heal a leper, but I believe each and every one of us, because we're indwelt with that same powerful spirit of God, that same movement of God, do in some way, shape, or form experience God's movement. So what does the movement of God look like? Our text this morning for a little while will be Galatians chapter 5. So if you flip there in your Bibles, we'll start in verse 16. Galatians is a book, or rather a letter written by Paul to the Christians at Galatia. The major event, or I guess you'd say the major issue of the day, is Christians who are not Jews. Remember, Christianity started as a Jewish religion because Christ was a Jew. Uh, Christ's disciples were Jews. And so, uh, although the message was extremely potent and wouldn't take too long until it was received by the greater or the rest of the world, um, at the beginning, it was a Jewish religion. And that tenet of the Jewish faith, a character of their faith, was... Remember, their giving of the law on that day, Pentecost. And so, to be a faithful Jew, even a faithful Jew who believed in Christ, you were still, in a way, bound to those Old Testament laws about food regulations, and when you can do this, and when you can do that, and Sabbath. And all of those laws, of course, being geared towards freeing God's people, so that they wouldn't get held up in foolish practices that really did them no good. But they really distinctively apply to that Jewish group of people. And so when it comes to a person who's a non-Jew, and the Bible uses the word Gentile, well, what do they have to do? Are they supposed to follow all of these food laws? Are they supposed to do this and supposed to do that? That's the issue Paul is addressing to the church in Galatia. And uh, really his big exhortation to them is that they are free from those laws. A non-Jew is free and doesn't have to follow those laws. They have freedom through Christ and their faith in Christ. But he says, don't blow your freedom. Don't blow your freedom. And so if you look in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, um, Paul has some very, very interesting words about what the movement of God looks like and also what the movement of God does not look like. So that stagnant, lifeless um, environment. We'll start in verse 16. Live by the, I'm actually, our Bibles all say spirit, but I'm actually going to um, replace that this morning by the movement of God. So here we go. Live by the movement of God, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our Bibles say flesh. I'm going to throw in self. So here's how verse 16 reads and it's full. Live by the movement of God, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the self. For what the self desires is opposed to the movement of God. And what the movement of God desires is opposed to the self. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Now skip down to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. They are fornication, impurity, licentiousness. Licentiousness is a, um, an aggressive pursuit of selfish interests especially in the area of sexual matters, um, with no moral regard. So aggressively pursuing those things that make me happy, most often at the expense of others. That's what licentiousness means. 
The list goes on, verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I have warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That to me is an example of a stifling, stagnant, lifeless list. A life that manifests those kind of characteristics, those are not the kind of people I want to be around. But oftentimes I find myself involved in some of those types of activities. As I really, I, I guess I deflect the movement of God in my life so that I can be involved in a list like that. 22 of Galatians chapter 5, by contrast. The fruit of the movement of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a refreshing list. That's a list you're like, wow, a person who manifests those things in their lives, that's an individual I want to spend time with. I need to read that list again. By contrast, the fruit of the movement of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against such things, Paul says. The elders are powerful characteristics. That is the evidence of a life that has God moving within them, that God's spirit is being uh, received and then impacting the world through those kind of manifestations of character. But some of those words are, are old, some of those words have lost their meaning, or maybe some of those words are so loaded with baggage from Christianity's presentation of this passage for many, many years, at least in our lifetimes, that a, a, a refreshing of these words sometimes is necessary. And that's why it's convenient to have a book like Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible. His interpretation of what this text would be um, comes in his book known as The Message. And so I'll read that for you this morning. So he has an updated version in the common vernacular language of our day. He presents this passage in the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 5 here. So these would be Paul's words. My counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit or God's movement. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, they're opposite, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? Peterson goes on, to present the words of Paul by saying it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, Divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and Paul says, I could go on. 
Now he says, this isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we do live God's way? What happens when we do allow God's spirit, God's powerful redeeming agent to move through our lives? Well, much the same way that fruit appears in, in an orchard, he brings gifts into our lives. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, but we're rather able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. To review, God is constantly moving like the wind. He is constantly involved in sending his spirit out into the world. Um, he is constantly involved, just like the wind, he's constantly moving and involved in each and every life that um, is in communion with him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the questions I have for you this morning is whether or not you're moving, whether or not you're experiencing that movement of God. We talked about wind being... Um, extremely powerful, wind being uh, refreshing. It's very interesting that wind can be harnessed. Uh, wind can fill the sails of a ship and, and uh, allow it to be transported along. Wind, eh, wind is a, um, a powerful, um, sometimes extremely destructive force, um, but wind can be avoided, can it? I mean, you sat in your home last night if you felt the winds that were ripping down from the mountain. And although you can feel the wind on the outside of your house, maybe, or you can see the trees blowing, sitting inside your house, you're relatively protected from that wind. I know that when I go backpacking, uh, especially in the wintertime when the weather can be much worse than, than in the summer or spring or fall, uh, we spend a good amount of time building shelters around our tents or building uh, wind walls, we call them. And the purpose of a wind wall is obvious. It's to deflect the wind so that our tent doesn't get blown down and hammered all night and tent poles broken. And so that wind wall goes up in an effort to deflect the wind. Now, what can you do with the wind? Can you stop it? No, of course not. That's, that's not the endeavor. You can't stop the wind. What you can do, though, is deflect the wind. You can divert the wind. You can, although it's passing all around you in some way, shape, or form, you cannot necessarily, you can, you can protect yourself from feeling the effects of the wind. Well, what's the spiritual principle there? If God is constantly moving in the world, if his wind, if his spirit, if his presence is constantly flowing in the world, what can we do? We can harness it, we can set our sails up and let it take, it, let us, uh, let it take us for a ride, or we can build our walls, kind of walls towards God's presence and his movement in our lives. And Well, how do we build those walls? What, what do those areas look like in our lives? What do those areas look like in your life? Those areas you've, you've maybe experienced God's power and his movement in your life, but after a period of time you've decided, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not so into that, and you build a wall to divert God's movement in your life. That wall, 
What does that wall look like in some of your lives? Does it, does it look like stubbornness towards certain things? Does it look like a specific sin or a, a specific rebellion in one area or another? What is stopping you from experience the, experiencing the full movement of God in your lives? I think that's the challenge of this element this morning. It's a simple one and it's a neat one. Wind is constant. There's never a time or a place when wind is not moving somewhere on the earth. And it's the same thing with God and his presence and his redeeming activity and his life-filled, not at all stagnant spirit and movement in the world that each of us, I believe, longs to be involved with. But many times, um, because of decisions we make in our lives, we divert that wind and we don't experience the full movement of God. So my final challenge for you this morning is, is when you go outside and next time you see the wind... Transport yourself back a couple thousand years. And instead of uh, being the modern that you are, or the postmodern that you are, with your scientific understanding of the world, and atmospheric pressures, and this and that, and your understanding of the wind, try and picture it like an ancient wood. Try and picture that movement as the direct of, of air, as that wind is the direct hand of God moving to bring that force. And then challenge yourself and ask yourself, every time you see that wind blow, especially great during this time of year because we will experience the power of the wind, check yourself, ask yourself, am I experiencing God's movement in my life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the powerful example um, that comes from your word and your world about your spirit, about your movement, about your redeeming activity in the world. I just pray that uh, this morning each of us would reflect on our own lives um, and areas of our lives that we might be diverting your movement and not experiencing the fullness and the joy and, and the beauty that comes from a relationship with you. We thank you so much for this time this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.